Hello and welcome to Hypot and Fuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the Mathematics and Physical Sciences faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I am completely unqualified to be here, but very enthusiastic. With me as always from MAPS is my excellent co-host, the much more qualified Sophie Lane. And our guest today is extremely qualified to be here. It's Professor of Astrophysics, Richard Ellis. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have worked a lot around the world doing a multitude of different things. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your areas of research or what you're focusing on at the moment? So I'm an astronomer and I'm an observer. That is mean I use big telescopes on the ground and in space. And uh, one of the themes of my work is looking back in time. So when we use a powerful telescope, we see the great distances and the light takes a long time to reach the telescope. So we are using the universe as a time machine. So uh, most of my career has been in piecing together the history of the universe from direct observations. And, you know, I'm pretty, pretty old now, so I've seen the whole subject develop. Uh, and now we're probing the universe back to when it was about 3% of its present age. So in other words, we've charted the history of the universe through mostly through observations of galaxies over 97% of cosmic time. So how how old exactly is that then? That's So the universe most people probably know the universe began with a big bang. Uh, and we see the glow from that Big Bang uh, today. Uh, it's the heat from the Big Bang that's obviously cooled a lot over time. Um, and the universe formed 13.8 billion years ago. So that's about three times older than the solar system. So, you know, it's been around a while. And we're, with our most powerful telescopes, including the Hubble Space Telescope, which I'm sure you've heard of, um, we're looking back to when the universe was about 400 million years old. So that's about 3% of 13.8 billion years. So in some sense, you could say we're like archaeologists. We're, you know, instead of digging deep into the earth and uncovering layers of Roman and Greek history and Egyptian history, we're actually slicing the universe in time and going back to when the universe was very, very young. We don't live long enough to see any object in the universe evolve itself like a galaxy. So we see galaxies at different periods of cosmic history and we have to statistically piece together how they evolve from one time slice to another. Um, it's a bit like taking photographs in different places at different times in history and then trying to understand how you know society or architecture grew with time. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, subject and I'm still so excited you, about it. Yeah. How you got from bustles to flares yeah, and fashion. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do it in space. Yeah, exactly. So what is it about galaxies uh, in particular that allow you to sort of map them like this more than other objects in the universe? So galaxies are the visible fabric of the universe. So they are the, the, the beacons that show us you know, what we can see at different times. Of course, not everything in the universe is, is embedded in a galaxy, but galaxies are cities of stars. And of course, we're in a solar system surrounding a star, the sun. And so in a way, if we understand the evolution of objects like the sun, then we can start to try to figure out how a galaxy evolves. But because galaxies are fairly bright, I mean, most of them have a 100 
you know, million, 100,000 million uh, stars like the sun, then we can see them at great distances. And hence, we can examine them at early cosmic times. So um, galaxies are, you know, interesting in their own right uh, for studying uh, how stars form and die, but also they're signposts to early times in the universe where we can study, you know, how they formed and evolved. So when you're you're looking at these, what are you actually seeing? Do you, you know, you, everybody as a kid looks through a telescope and they yeah. look at a twinkly, twinkly star. What What can you actually physically see? So we began by counting them. I mean, you know, it's the most elementary thing that you can do when you first enter a subject for the first time. So believe it or not, my career began at Durham University and in those days uh, we had photographic plates. So these were large plates with photographic emulsion on, just like the good old days where, you know, cameras had photographic film in it. And we would expose on a telescope for maybe an hour and then we'd go into a dark room, if you can remember those days, and we'd process the, the plate. And then we would literally count galaxies at different brightnesses on these photographs. And most of the distant galaxies are so small at these great distances, they're just little blurs of light. But then um, in the 90s, Hubble Space Telescope was launched. It goes above the Earth's atmosphere. It gives us extremely sharp images. So for the first time, we could resolve these galaxies and determine whether they had spiral patterns in them. We couldn't do that from the ground because the blurring in the Earth's atmosphere you know, makes them very, very fuzzy, especially the small, faint ones. We needed the visual acuity of Hubble above the Earth's atmosphere to give us the fine level of detail. But as we got more ambitious and we pushed the frontiers back further and further, even now Hubble is just resolving the most distant objects are little, just simply blurs of light. So the next level of detail is we can get the spectrum of the galaxy that we break the light into uh, its uh, frequencies and we see signatures of the chemistry of the gas. So for instance, does the gas have oxygen uh, or is it pure hydrogen? Uh, can we see elements of silicon and carbon and so forth? So what, what would that tell you if, well, it, if something had oxygen as opposed to hydrogen? Yeah, well, um, everything that we see around us, all the heavy elements, uh, iron, nickel, you know, the iron in our blood, the ca calcium in our bones, is all produced by nuclear reactions in stars. So, you know, stars are the mechanism whereby which the heavy elements are produced. And when a star, if it's massive enough, dies, it explodes and it sends these uh, chemical elements into space. And so over time, these gas clouds become polluted with oxygen, carbon, iron, and so forth. So as we go back in time, we would expect less and less chemistry. You know, as we go back to the beginning, where galaxies are forming for the first time, we would expect the gas to be pristine and just made of hydrogen and maybe a little bit of helium, uh, which are the only uh, atomic elements uh, that were produced in the Big Bang. So chemistry is, in, of course, it's demanding to get a spectrum of a faint galaxy, uh, but you know it's become possible as we build bigger and bigger telescopes uh, to do this. So my group at UCL is very much moving into the chemistry 
of these early galaxies, not just, you know, we're no longer counting them, you know, we've gone a little bit beyond that after 40 years. So now we're moving into astrochemistry. So it must be amazing to, to you know, run computer programs and get all this information and mm. still be, and then yet be able to remember being sat around a massive image counting galaxies. Right. Do you find it? The subject has, has evolved or accelerated, um, especially in the last 10 years. Um, the first, it's amazing, uh, you know, I've been involved in this now for 40 years and the gradient, the speed of progress is accelerating and it's just extremely exciting, you know, because what that means is that when I came to UCL and I wrote a proposal to get my European grant, um, I was encouraged to be ambitious in this proposal. And that was three, four years ago. And I've more or less, you know, gone past where I thought I would be in that research, simply because the subject is moving so fast. And it's exhilarating, you know, it means that every day uh, there's a potential for for progress that was unforeseen, not necessarily all by our group, of course, but by by the astronomical community. Is that due to the just how fast technology is developing? Yes, it's, it's two respects. Uh, one is technology. So just give some examples. We started, as I mentioned, with these very simple photographic plates. Their efficiency, that is, you know, a photon coming from a faint galaxy, you know, you know, what's the efficiency of detecting that photon on a photographic plate? It's about 1%. Now, the digital detectors that we all love in our iPhones have, you know, sensitivities of 80 to 90%. So that's like having overnight a telescope that's 90 times more powerful than the one you were using before. We can now correct for the blurring in the Earth's atmosphere from the ground. So you mentioned this before. What What is the blurring in the atmosphere? So the atmosphere is not uh, uniform in its uh, in its either its motion or its temperature. So there are pockets of air that are warmer and colder than the adjacent ones. And as a light ray comes down, it is refracted by these boundaries of warm and cold air. And of course, if there's motion like winds, that affects the, the, the passage of light. So... A beautiful signal from a faint galaxy gets converted into a ripple by the time it gets to the ground. But we now have the technology, believe it or not, uh, to correct for that blurring in, in, in respect of trying to get images that are even as good, if not better, than those that we get from the Hubble Space Telescope. So all of these um, technological developments are one aspect of the speeding up of progress. The other is we are actually, we always seem to do better than we imagine that we would. In other words, we are cautious uh, in writing our proposals, even if we're encouraged to be ambitious. Uh, and then we always find that we do better than we expected. You know, so astronomers are good value for money. We always <laughs> deliver more than we said we would, unlike politicians. <laughs> <laughs> With that in mind, what do you think in, say, the next like 20 years, mm. what do you think is the next like frontier space of, the final yeah that's, that is what I was <clears throat> well are we t we're talking here about astronomy in general not just the area in which i work and uh i would say there are three areas that are represent the frontier and if i'm allowed to say one of them is is the area that i'm working on we'll allow so that. early galaxies <laughs> is one but we've talked about that 
the other is finding um, the composition of atmospheres on planets around nearby stars. So this is what we called exoplanets. So in the 1980s, no planets were known about around other stars, and we conjectured that the solar system might be rather special. We now know that's not the case, and we now know several thousand planets around other stars, and we even know that the Earth uh, is not atypical. Uh, but what we'd like to know is, you know, is the Earth special in, in any other way in terms of its atmosphere uh, that's conducive to life? And we have the glimpse of the composition of atmospheres of stars already, but we haven't gone into wholesale imaging uh, and characterizing these exoplanets in detail. So, you know, I think over the next 20 years, that's a very big growth area. The other uh, big area is gravitational waves. Now, gravitational waves were predicted a century ago uh, that when two black holes merge, it's such a ca catastrophic event that it sends ripples in, in space uh, that you know can be detected spaces stretching a little bit uh, as these ripples pass by and only two years ago we detected well not me personally but we detected as a community gravitational waves and this opens the universe to a completely new uh, tool in astrophysics for studying uh, black holes uh, neutron stars and other exotic objects so this is like opening a window to something that's completely new, just like radio telescopes uh, during the Second World War opened radio astronomy, X-ray telescopes that were launched into space in the 60s opened up X-ray astronomy. So I predict gravitational wave astronomy uh, will be developed very, very rapidly in the next 20 years. There's this big space mission called LISA, which is going to be launched in 2030 or thereabouts. So I think that's going to be very exciting. And how, how would they actually measure that then? Will it be from the, the space mission? So on the ground, it's measured by what we call an interferometer. So this is two arms uh, whose lengths are monitored very, very precisely. I'm talking down to atomic scales. And as this ripple through space passes through this interferometer, there's a stretching of these two axes the sort of x-axis and the y-axis as this gravitational wave passes. This spacecraft will have, you know, uh, along a baseline, it'll have two detectors or more uh, that are separated by a much larger distance, and so it'll be much more accurate. Uh, and, of course, the, the technology allows us to put this in space, which is, is truly amazing. This, um, this is a quick aside. An interferometer, mm. is that similar? I feel I'm having a... Did they try and measure the ether with interferometers? Yes, they did. Michelson, yeah. And, yeah, Michelson-Morley. Um, you know, Michelson-Morley tried to determine uh, whether the speed of light varied according to the direction of the Earth. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the idea was that, you know, if you're sitting in a boat you know, and there's a wind, then if you go in the direction of the wind, you know, then, you, you know, the wind, you, you sense the, the wind in your face. And if you go in the opposite direction, the wind is behind you. And so one of the uh, expectations was that the speed of light, uh, you know, would be different depending on your motion. And the negative result from that, you know, led to uh, special relativity and Einstein's theory. So it was a key, key measurement at the, at the turn of the century. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, that something 
um, a negative result that no one was expecting and it's uh, was negative came. results are wonderful you know the best thing you can do to a theory is disprove it you yeah know, then people have to go back to the drawing board are there any negative results that scare you the idea that one coming well, up could <laughs> well i was involved uh i played a role uh in the detection of the accelerating universe so and we did not expect it so when i was at cambridge in the 80s and uh 90s um we began a project a large project to determine how how much the universe was slowing down in its expansion so the universe is expanding but because the universe contains gravitating matter, uh, that expansion should slow down. Just like when you throw a ball in the air, the gravity of the Earth slows the motion of that ball down. And uh, so we set out to measure this uh, with supernovae, exploding stars. And um, it took about eight years to get the measurements uh, because we had to set up the framework for doing the project. And we found, to our horror, that the universe was not slowing down, but speeding up. And uh, there was a rival team. Um, and I remember f very vividly I was um, in a sharing an office with a member of the rival team. And, uh, you know, he was on the phone to one of his collaborators. And he got the news that the other team uh, determined that the universe was accelerating. And then he put the phone down and he looked at me and I looked at him and I said, it can't be right. And he said, no, it can't be right, can it? And then we realized that we both had independently measured the same accelerating universe and it got the Nobel Prize in uh, 2011. So that was amazing. Do we know why it's accelerating? Well, that's and why, um, in answer to Sophie's question, you know, a surprising result or a negative result uh, is exciting because it opens the door to new physics. And so what causes this accelerating universe? Uh, we we give it a name, dark energy. We, you know, this is a bit of a dodge because, you know, astronomers use the word dark whenever they don't really quite know what's going on. <laughs> um, but it's very, very good for raising money, you know, dark matter, dark energy, dark ages, and so forth. So dark energy is a property of space. Um, that we don't understand. So it's as if we had a vacuum cleaner and we extracted all the material from a box of space and then you put your hands around this box of space, it's completely empty and you feel a pressure pushing your hands apart. So there's some property of space that we don't understand and uh, there's papers every month uh, trying to understand what this dark energy is, whether it changes with time, which is a big push uh, for the UCL cosmology group to try to determine whether dark energy is uh, constant. Is it a constant property of space or does, you know, does it change? Is it a property that's been there from the beginning of the universe or, or what? So space ghosts. That's my best Space theory. ghosts. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, you know, after Halloween, that's topical. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, did you... I mean, you say exciting, but you also said at the moment it was horrifying. Was it like you think you're about to reach the finish line of a race and you turn a corner and you realise there's just miles and miles to go? Science is like that, um, it, that you never close the book. You know, um, 
and people who have, if you, you look through history and people have said, well, you know, it's pretty well clear that we've got this subject sewn up. And people <laughs> said that before Einstein, you know, physics is more or less understood. And then there was the quantum theory and then relativity. So um, I think that's why science is fun. You know, it, it, it's a never ending quest. And at some level, some subjects you, you get into and you enter a new layer of detail. And not everybody likes working in an intricate subject like weather forecasting or, you know, we don't have to understand every single detail of a galaxy, for instance. So I tend to, and I have moved from area to area, I like very much topics which are simple, uh, which are largely unexplored. You know, simple as, you know, why did the universe begin? You yeah, know, why just... did he, you know, when did galaxies form? You know, what happened to them in the early time? You know, can we observe directly the moment when the galaxy switched on, which is the theme of my current grant at UCL, which we call first light, you know, when the universe switched on starlight. That was going to be my first. my kind of next question was, can do we know if, any, if everything just turned on at once or was there kind of this slow awakening like a, you know, sustainable light bulb coming <laughs> to life? So we don't, the, the plain answer, is, Laura, is we don't know because uh, we haven't observed it. Uh, as usual, there are theorists and they're very good at simulating what might have happened and their picture is that it's gradual over a period probably about two or three hundred million years. Uh, you know, there's a, maybe a flicker early on and then, you know, more of them switch on and then there's a crescendo, you know, and then everything is shining. So um, the exciting thing is that we are pretty sure we know approximately when this happened uh, from our recent work. Uh, unfortunately, Hubble cannot look that far back uh, for technical reasons uh, but in two years time it will have a successor called the James Webb Space Telescope and so we're planning now to use that it's a bigger more powerful telescope obviously in space and we're going to use James Webb to search uh, for this moment and we'll see you know and I hope you know I'm around to see the result. <laughs> Um, so that's what you're working on at the moment. Mm. We, has that taken you... So that's what brought you back from Caltech. Mm -hmm. Were you just at UCL or were you working with other institutions as well? So we have collaborations. Obviously, I, built, I was in America for a long time, 16 years, so I have strong links with the group at Caltech and elsewhere in the US um, and in Japan. And when I came back from America, I spent two years in Germany, in Munich, at the European Southern Observatory, um, and then I started my group at UCL. So yeah, it's an international subject. We have a group of about six people in my group at UCL, but it's we're an international team in a way. We have collaborators in in other countries. So and I like very much working uh, internationally. I find it refreshing to you know go to other countries and learn what's happening there. Astronomy is very global. Uh, and uh, and that's because we don't have laboratories, you know. So if you're a biologist, maybe, you know, you have a big team and you have your own lab uh, and you go down the corridor when you're not teaching and you go into that laboratory. We have to get on a plane, you know, and go to Hawaii or Chile. And there we meet, you know, Japanese astronomers and American astronomers and we get talking. And I like that style of research very much. 
You have must, to share. <laughs> so it must be quite hard to get access to these telescopes, yeah. isn't it? Is it just, has it got like a booking system? Do you go so online? It's, <laughs> so it's competitive. So there are telescope deadlines um, and we apply for time, just like we apply for grants. Uh, and we're getting, you know, we're getting pretty good at doing this now. We've been doing it for 40 years. So we write proposals and <clears throat> typically there depends on the telescope, but usually they're four or five times oversubscribed. So we have to do a professional job. So twice a year we, we drop everything and spend 10 or 15 days writing proposals. And then, you know, uh, usually we're successful. Um, and then we get scheduled particular nights. Now there's two ways it works. One is there's what's called queue observing, which is where you're not scheduled any time. You don't go to the telescope, but some uh, observatory official or staff member will look at a program of approved programs and do them in the order of priority, and then you get the data over the internet. I don't like that mode because you don't go to the telescope. I like to go to the telescope uh, because I can go with my students and I shut myself off from my daily activities, you know, and I feel I'm communing, you know, with the universe. And so I much prefer the traditional model, whereas where you get you get allocated time, specific dates. The risk is, of course, the weather, because if you're given specific dates and it's cloudy, you've you've lost the lottery basically. And so, so we look very closely at the weather all the time. It's very, you know the worst thing is flying all that way and being completely clouded out, and and then explaining to a student that they should keep their spirits up. You know that not you know that I've been through this many times. Don't worry, etc. <laughs> it's quite like humbling, isn't it? Like we come like you know record pace change, amazing technology that 50 years ago people have never could have imagined and still like and still cloud. checking the weather. Well, the, you know, um, Sophie, the worst thing is when the cloud is literally just over the telescope. It's not, you know, <laughs> it's not, you know, sort of a huge meteorological feature that's crossing the Pacific, but it's just fog around the telescope. And you can sometimes walk sideways and it's clear and there's just mist around the telescope then you know it really is very humiliating we yeah. thought about putting one on rails we could <laughs> <laughs> they're pretty couple expensive of, things of, i love the names personally there's very large telescopes yes. and extremely large yes. telescopes it's very inventive in the name yeah so of there was a telescope that was planned uh, after the very large telescope which was called the overwhelmingly large telescope, <laughs> OWL. Uh, but they, you know, the European Southern Observatory couldn't afford that, so they had to scale it down, and it's now called the extremely large telescope. Which is, which is excellent. Uh, yeah. Now, you had a role in developing a 30-metre telescope in Hawaii, is right. that right? So one of my attractions of moving to California was to get involved in the 30-metre telescope, which is a... A uh, project that's uh, funded, uh, that's destined to be built uh, on the summit of a mountain in Hawaii, and as the name suggests, it's thirty. The mirror is thirty meters across, so to put that in context, the current telescopes uh, are eight to ten meters across, so thirty over ten squared, because the area of the mirror is what counts, is a factor of nine or ten. 
So this is an order of magnitude more powerful than the current telescopes. Now a mirror that big, would a single mirror that big would not uh, be stable. It would it would buckle under its own weight, and so this mirror is made of 786 smaller segments that are each hexagonal. So next time you look at a tiled wall, you see these hexagonal tiles all connecting to one another. So imagine making 786 little mirrors, each one about 1.2 meters across, and then having a support structure underneath each of these hexagonal mirrors that arranges for all of these 768 mirrors to act in unison as a uh, as a hyperbola, as it turns out, uh, surface uh, that acts as a single 30-meter mirror. And that's the technical challenge of this amazing project. And the Europeans are building a equivalent telescope, uh, the extremely large telescope, which is 39 meters. Ooh. It just had to be bigger, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I'm still, you know, obviously I'm back in Europe and I've I worked at ESO for two years, but I still very much have a fond spot for the 30-meter telescope because I worked on it uh, for 15 years. And will that allow you to kind of further some of your work with the early galaxies? Yes. Will that kind of tie in together? Yeah. It's much more powerful uh, in some respects than even this James Webb Space Telescope that we talked about that's due to be launched uh, two years' time because James Webb is a six and a half meter telescope and the progress in correcting for the blurring in the Earth's atmosphere that we discussed is going to be built in day one into both the European and the 30 meter telescopes. So the sheer size of this telescope will allow us to get much more detail on early objects um, and of course it'll make great progress on things like exoplanets as well. So it's going to be very exciting. Unfortunately it's a, there are both telescopes are a little bit further in the future. So the European telescope is 2025, and the American telescope, which has collaborations with other countries, is about 2028. So have to you know keep healthy a bit longer to see those. But James Webb is 2021, so that's that's pretty close by. There, we have a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. Um, who is your science hero? So my science hero is a uh, Cambridge professor um, called uh, Arthur Eddington, um, and he was uh, a theorist originally, um, and he began his work by looking at uh, you know what makes a star shine. Uh, but then, uh, during the First World War, he heard about Einstein's theory of relativity, and uh, he immediately realized this was a breakthrough, um, and he decided uh, to become an observer uh, to test Einstein's theory. So Einstein's theory predicts that light is bent by massive objects, and we call this uh, gravitational lensing, the bending of light not by an optical lens, but by a massive object. And um, he realized that it could be detected at an eclipse. So at an, if, a, if, an, if you take a photograph of a star field at the time of an eclipse, the positions of the stars on the sky will not be in exactly the same place as if the sun wasn't there, because the light from the stars has been bent 
by the mass of the sun. It's a very small effect. But and Eddington realized that he could do this and make this measurement. And But um, unfortunately, he was a Quaker. And uh, it was the First World War. And uh, he was going to be imprisoned for his unwillingness to fight. Um, but uh, the Astronomer Royal at the time uh, went to 10 Downing Street and made a plea to the Prime Minister that this man, Eddington, was the only person who could uh, make this measurement and uh, would he be permitted to plan for this eclipse. Now, the war ended before the eclipse as it happened, but Eddington uh, went to Africa, an island off the coast of Africa, and def measured this deflection. And that measurement catapulted Einstein into fame. It was the one measurement that, you know, made Einstein famous, that proved that Einstein's theory was of, of general relativity was correct. And, um, you know, Eddington deserved much of the glory of that as well, but, of course, he's in the shadow. You know, most people have heard of, well, everybody's heard of Einstein. Uh, very few people have heard of Eddington uh, outside uh, the subject of the physical sciences. So I think he's a great hero because, uh, you know, he was a theorist, but he decided wisely to become an observer like me. Um, and he you know, had a bit of a sense of humor because when he detected this um, measurement, um, people phoned him up uh, from the Daily Telegraph and said, you know, um, Einstein's theory is very complicated. Apparently, there are only three people in the world who understand it. He apparently replied to the journalist, really, who's the third person? He was obviously, you know, imagined that only he and Einstein really knew what was going on. Uh, so, you know, um, so I've, I've, I've made my own pilgrimage to the island off the coast of Africa where he made the measurement. I went there, you know, on a holiday and, um, you know, I've, I've been to the library and dug out his personal letters to his mother when he was there and so forth. So, so he's my hero. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast Pleasure. today, Professor thank you very Ellis. Much. It's uh, been extremely interesting, especially finding out about space ghosts. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for joining us on High Pot Infuse, and we'll see you next time for more Matt.